Well, good morning, everybody, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Bruce. Thank you. Well, every year at Christmas time, I say to myself, next year I'm going to replace that appalling nativity scene. I dislike nativity scenes in general, and I hate ours in particular. <laughs> Despite my best efforts, though, I've never been able to find anything better, at least not at a price I could afford. This year, though, I found myself um, thinking about nativity scenes more than usual, because about a month ago, I was asked, along with about 600 others, I was asked to write to the City of Perth town councillors, asking them to reconsider their cancellation last year of the annual City of Perth nativity scene event. So that got me thinking about nativity scenes and nativity plays. Nativity scenes as a thing go back to St. Francis of Assisi. He used human actors and live animals to recreate the imagined barn scene in a cave outside the city of Greccio in Italy in the year 1223. His desire, of course, was to put the focus of Christmas back on Jesus. And such nativity plays or pantomimes quickly became extremely popular. But over time, statues replacing live human actors and animals, giving a living tableau, becoming a static scene. And within a hundred years, every church in Italy had to have a nativity scene every Christmas. And the practice from there took off all around Christendom. Today, nativity scenes, again, as you probably well know, they're expected not just in churches, but they're also routinely found in public places, such as the display windows of department stores, shopping malls, and, and town squares. Uh, it's now traditional in the United States of America for the figures, the figurines of nativity, nativity scenes uh, to be stolen by way of a prank. And for that reason, uh, nativity scene figurines in the U.S. often helpfully come with discreet little GPS trackers. <laughs> and again, as you may well know, the appropriateness of nativity scenes in public places is now being routinely questioned across the Western world. In the U.S., there have been several legal challenges uh, against the practice. The claim being that they blur the distinction between church and state. There is now a reindeer rule in effect in the US, which allows a nativity scene in a public place as long as there is some non-religious referent included, such as, for example, Santa or a reindeer. In the uh, feel-good Christmas set romantic comedy of a few years back, Love Actually, uh, set in the UK, you might remember Love Actually, there's a scene in the film where a mother finds out that her primary-aged daughter has been chosen to perform in the school nativity scene. 
And when the mother asks the daughter what role she's been given, the daughter proudly declares, first lobster. To which her mother responds, there was more than one lobster at the birth of baby Jesus? To which the daughter replies, duh. So this is why I dislike our nativity scene. There's no reindeer and there are no lobsters. In Australia, the question is whether nativity scenes are appropriate to a multicultural society. Indeed, City of Perth, um, the nativity scene event was cancelled a year ago because it was not considered by the councillors at that time to be all-inclusive. So I'll tell you now something about why I dislike nativity scenes in general and ours in particular. Firstly, they fail to represent the birth of Jesus of Nazareth in any kind of historically or culturally accurate way. For a start, Jesus was not born in a stable or in a barn. He was born in a living room. There being no room left for Joseph and Mary in the guest room, the house in which they were staying in Bethlehem. Joseph's relatives were obviously people of some means, for their dwelling wasn't just a simple one-story, one-room house. No, it had a guest room attached, probably on the roof, probably accessed by way of a ladder. But the guest room was, was not available. More important guests were already installed in it. Jesus wasn't laid in a manger as we would imagine it. No, he was laid in a depression found in the living room floor at one end, that depression being the place where you put fodder for your animals, for your sheep and goats, for you kept your livestock with you at night through the winter months. But of course, there was no livestock in the room because Jesus wasn't born in the winter. Jesus wasn't born in December. He was born probably in late March or early April. He was born in the spring, the time of the year when the sheep are out being pastured all night, 24-7, in order to make use of the new spring growth. Nativity scenes also, of course, combine into one tableau several different events. They bring together, for example, uh, the shepherds and the wise men, almost certainly Iranian astrologers, even though the visit of the wise men, the the astrologers, was, was later, by several months or probably two years. They wouldn't have met each other. In our nativity scene, Mary, Joseph, And one of the kings and the shepherd, the shepherd himself, they're all so pale-skinned, we can be quite sure that none of them have seen more than 30 minutes of sunshine end-to-end in their entire lives. Our nativity scene looks like a romantic memory of something that may have happened in medieval Surrey, not first-century Palestine. Actually, I think artistically, from an artistic perspective, the correct term to describe the style of our nativity scene is camp, which means bad taste flaunted for ironic effect. And really, 
what's, what's wrong with nativity scenes is that we've domesticated the birth of Jesus. We've sentimentalized it. And in doing so, we have tamed it to the point of inoffensiveness. Uh, in my email to the Perth City Councillors, that was my first point. I'm going to read you a paragraph from my email. I want you to understand that I am indeed no longer proud of this email. But that was my first point. They're so inoffensive. I wrote, firstly, a nativity scene or event is not divisive. Whilst not everyone believes that God chose to save the world through the gift of a baby... The idea is about goodwill towards humanity, to all humanity, beginning right at the top. That is why Christmas has always been about celebrating charitable goodwill, even towards those otherwise forgotten and despised. I know many people who do not hold to my own Christian beliefs, including a good many who hold to other Christian beliefs or none at all other religious beliefs or none at all. But I have never encountered anyone who found the basic message of Christmas to be either offensive or divisive, unquote. Well, actually, there was some truth in my email, wasn't there? But the reason why the nativity scene is so inoffensive is that we have domesticated it. Seen through Western European eyes, the birth of Jesus is about the all-inclusive humility of God. Look at the circumstances in which Jesus was born. They are so humble. And so in our Western European cultural traditions, we praise the humbleness of God as king in coming in humble circumstances to save us. The Christmas carol, Good King Winsless makes sure you get the point by concluding with these lyrics. Therefore, Christian men be sure, wealth or rank possessing, ye who now will bless the poor, shall yourselves find blessing. Such thinking is not necessarily mistaken in encouraging Corinthian Christians to give generously to the poor. Paul wrote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. But for us, having domesticated the nativity scene, we've misunderstood even that. Yes, the circumstances were humble, But what we might therefore not really appreciate is that in being humble, the circumstances of Jesus' birth were shameful. Utterly shameful. The nation in servitude to a foreign power, the Romans. A census which was a condition of slavery. Mary and Joseph aren't married Amongst their own relatives, there are others who are of higher status. They get the guest room. The witnesses were shepherds, a group of people so despised as inherently unclean and irredeemably unclean that their testimony was considered inadmissible in a court of law. Jesus was born shamefully. And he died shamefully. 
there's no need for us to go into details today, but as I'm sure you already know, crucifixion was the most shameful way a person could die in the ancient world. And believe me, the Romans gave a lot of thought to the issue. Stretched out, naked, nailed to a cross, the victim of verbal, physical, and sexual abuse, the person left to die as however they might die. Jesus was born shamefully, and he died shamefully. And that's not a coincidence. Jesus came to deal with our shame, to take it upon himself. Now, our culture is not an on a shame culture, so we're not used to talking about shame. For many of us, the word shame means essentially the same thing as embarrassment. But even though we might not use the word much, shame is as powerful a force in our culture as it is in anybody else's. Shame as a feeling is that desperately awful feeling of being found inferior inadequate, unworthy, unacceptable. It is to have been found out. It is to have been uncovered, made vulnerable. It results from doing the wrong thing. Many times it results from doing what you think is the wrong thing, whether or not it is the wrong thing. And it is the emotion that we feel when we expect and anticipate rejection. We often choose to shame one another, but if we were ever to be shamed before God, where on earth could we find help? Well, Jesus took up our shame. In his birth, throughout his ministry, and finally and perfectly at the cross, in order to remove it from us. Throughout his ministry, perhaps some of you are thinking, yes, you look, pretty much every day, Jesus was shamed by somebody. Sometimes he took it upon himself intentionally in order to deflect the hostility to himself from them. God could have come in overwhelming power, a landlord coming to terrify in violence in order to evict his shameful tenants. Tenants who have behaved badly, but he didn't. He, he came as a baby, born in shameful circumstances. In other words, God chose not to play the shame game, even when he could have. Or perhaps more accurately, he did play the shame game, just not in the way we were expecting. And there, 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 there now, there we have it. That is probably the real reason why I dislike nativity scenes. I sense the shame. And I'm ashamed of the shame. It's shameful the way God came to earth. 
If I was him, I would have come in unimaginable power to, everyone, to terrify everyone into godly submission. Be afraid would have been my message. In my email to the Perth City Councillors, here's my second point. I wrote, quote, Second, rejecting one particular event on the basis of it not being all-inclusive opens the commissioners up to the possibility of harsh criticism in the future should they choose to endorse events that are likewise not all-inclusive. I can think of any number of cultural and artistic events that purport to be about inclusivity and equality, yet actually preach values and views that a significant number of people find offensive and divisive. If the commissioners really feel that a nativity event must be rejected because it is not all-inclusive, then allowing other events of the nature I've alluded to would be simple hypocrisy, unquote. Well, there's some truth in my awful email, isn't there? But I'm playing the shame game, aren't I? I'm subtly threatening them with the label hypocrite. I'm threatening them with shame if they don't bow to my values. My email was a thinly veiled threat to shame them. And yes, I have since repented and asked God's forgiveness. As um, we are acutely aware, the United States of America is in the grip of a culture war. Two visions, two cultures. Um, it's an argument that is currently so fierce that many people fear this Cold War could potentially go hot. Before the presidential election of November of this year, both left, both left and right extremist groups were arming themselves. A similar although not identical culture war, is going on here in Australia, although it is not quite so obvious. In these culture wars, two sides have different visions of righteousness, that is to say, right behavior. And each side threatens the other side with the shame of being labeled unrighteous. Of course, we don't use that language, that's church language. We don't use those words, to be sure. We use terms like hate speech and this phobia and that phobia. Cancel culture is a culture of public shaming. But I'm no different. Did you hear in my email how I alluded to them preaching values that I find offensive and divisive? But Isaiah saw it and he prophesied, the coming of the son of David would be a king and his arrival would be really bad news for the arms industry. It would be really bad news with respect to war. He shuts down all kinds of wars. And from now on, whenever I see a nativity scene, I'll remember that it is functionally the same as looking at a cross, at a crucifix. For the joy set before him, he endured the shame. He won the shame game 
by not shaming others, even when he could have to perfection, but rather by accepting our shame on our behalf so that we can stand before his Father without shame. Let us pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus so that we could know just exactly what you were like. Thank you for not shaming us. We acknowledge, each one of us, we acknowledge that you could have. Thank you indeed, Lord Jesus, for bearing our shame in the circumstances of your birth and in your day-to-day ministry and most perfectly in your death bearing the shame we deserved, the the rejection and condemnation that ought to have been ours. Please help me this Christmas to stop playing the shame game forever, accepting, of course, that I'm willing to play it your way, accepting the shame, for the sake of the welfare of others, even including my enemies. Glory to you, Lord Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.